it's Thursday, and we're back with a season finale of Days of the New. How you feeling, Kevin? I am feeling fantastic. As much as I love the genre and as much as I love you, I can't wait to not fucking talk about this. It is summer vacation, baby. Hell yes. We won't take too long, but this is going to wrap up season three. I can't believe we've done three of these. I know. I know. I guess before the next season, we should just count all the episodes in the mosh pits because we got to be nearing 100. I would say say so. If we haven't already topped it, we got to be near there. Yeah. So thank all of you for hanging out and listening to all this shit for all these years. And and thank you to the new listeners. We've had quite the uptick and uh, I've seen people going into our back catalog and guys, we, we really appreciate it. Before we get into this, Nick, I do need to lead off with some corrections. Okay, please do. Okay. So Liz in Hawaii informed me that on the New Line Cinema mosh pit with uh, Mogan, I incorrectly identified Australian actor, director, and threat to himself and others, Matthew Newton, as playing the role of Lestat in Queen of the Damned. Uh, Newton, in fact, played Armand, and the role of Lestat was played by Stuart Townsend. So, Liz, thank you, and my apologies to all Queen of the Damned fans. (laughs) Dorks. (laughs) And I I have one more. Uh, in our cop killer episode, friend of the show, Party Mike, it's either Party Mike or Partea. I read it Partea, Mike. <laughs> I know. I like Partea. I like Partea. Mike let us know that it was not the godfather of soul, James Brown, who videotaped women using the bathroom, but the godfather of rock and roll, Chuck Berry. In the case of James Brown, Time Magazine reported at the time of his arrest Rumors of a PCP habit had already surfaced by the time his erratic behavior came to a head in September, when he reportedly stormed into the insurance company next to his office, waving a shotgun and complaining that strangers were using his bathroom. When the police arrived, Brown led them on a high-speed chase through Georgia and South Carolina. He tried to ram police cars with his pickup truck. They shot at two of his tires, and then he drove on the rims for an additional six miles. Chuck Berry, on the other hand, filmed women using the bathroom of his restaurant. And there's a whole list of other crimes that he was involved in, which a lot involve human bodily waste and none, which I wanted to talk about. So, Partea, thank you. All right, cool. How about you don't fuck anything up this week, Kevin? (laughs) I will certainly try. I will certainly try. All right. Well, we should get to the topic at hand. Uh, Today, we are talking about one of my favorite albums of all time, Mm -hmm. the self-titled and first release from Rage Against the Machine. This is in the the top five of the new metal genre. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's definitely an argument. Is Rage Against the Machine new metal? Like, I'll call them proto-new metal. I mean, they certainly influenced everything to come. They're certainly smarter than most new metal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there is that. Let's dive in. Rage Against the Machine was formed in 1991 in Los Angeles, California. Two titans in Tom Morello and Zach De La Roca made and shaped Rage Against the Machine. Zach, the politically charged hardcore singer, and Tom, the Harvard-educated guitar wizard. Zach was born in 1970 in Long Beach. His father was Beto De La Roca, a famous muralist. His great-grandfather was a Mexican revolutionary who fought in the Mexican Revolution. His grandfather, however, was a hardworking, struggling farm worker in the United States. All of these things would contribute much to Zach's lyrical output. After his parents' divorce, Zach moved to Irvine with his mother, uh, which he described as super racist against Hispanics. Uh, (laughs) He's quoted as saying, if you were a Mexican in Irvine, you were there because you had a broom or a hammer in your hand. I can't argue with it. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit of his experience uh, in a few minutes. Tom Morello was born in Harlem in 1964. His father was the first Kenyan ambassador to the United States. His great uncle was the first elected president of Kenya. He was raised in Libertyville, Illinois by his mother after his parents split. Uh, She was a history teacher there. In 1987, she founded Parents for Rock and Rap, an activist group that focused on the importance of free speech and acted in contrast to the PMRC, who you heard about in our Body Count episode. Yeah. That's super cool. That is very cool. I had no idea. Yeah. And that was in 87. So that was five years before Raging Against the Machine. It's not like she did this because of the music that her son was putting out. She just, this is what she believed. And that's sick. 
Tom, as a kid, uh, he's super into Kiss. He was really into Queen. He loved Black Sabbath, but then later got into like Sex Pistols and Bad Brains and stuff. So like, the usual he's, suspects. He's, yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, he moved to LA after Harvard uh, alongside uh, a pal from Liberty and a former bandmate, Adam Jones, who would go on to play guitar and tool. Morello developed a very interesting style of guitar playing. While everybody else was playing like cool Eddie Van Halen super strats with one knob, Tom had a shitty Gibson Explorer with a bunch of knobs on it because that's all he could afford. And he wired the toggle switch to act like a kill switch. And when he paired that with his effects pedals and then used his drop D tuning, the guitar sometimes sounded like a turntable or a keyboard. And every Rage Against the Machine album has a label that reads no samples, keyboards, or synthesizers used in the making of this record at the end of the sleeve notes. Uh, hmm. Just to kind of call that out that like all this wacky stuff you're hearing is done on the guitar. I always figured that Tom Morello's musical inspiration was uh, Matthew Winslow from Police Academy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, you wouldn't be wrong. I mean, if he's not making his guitar moo like a cow or make a police siren <laughs> or sound like a lady screaming. These two collided. Uh, when Tom Morello left the band Lockup shortly after the release, something bitchin' this way comes. They linked up with Tim Comerford, who plays the bass, and then Brad Wilk plays the drums in Rage Against the Machine. So uh, Brad Wilk unsuccessfully auditioned for Lockup, but was good enough. And uh, Tom called him and that that formed the basic lineup. But let's go back to uh, Morello's band. Um, <laughs> again, the band is called Lockup. The album is called Something Bitchin' This Way Comes. And let's play uh, a little track from, from this album. <laughs> this is Punch Drunk. All right, so you can hear a little Morello guitar work in there. I've got a, uh, I've got a few pieces from a uh, February fourteenth, nineteen ninety one piece. It's an interview with uh, the singer of Lockup, Brian Grillo, uh, and this is from the L.A. Times. So it starts off with Lockup's music is sort of like Eddie Money impersonating Bruce Springsteen, while a Red Hot Chili Peppers record plays at James Brown's house. <laughs> I think that's a compliment, though. He goes, I, I think it rocks. It's funky. It's loud. There are no Indigo Girls covers and the crowd does not necessarily wear black. I don't know if that's like high praise or like what's wrong with Indigo Girls. I know. Right. So there's like a q and I'm just going to read two of the questions and answers because they're hilarious to me. So keep that description that you I just read you in mind. They ask the singer of Lockup. Who goes to lockup shows? And he says, well, we get a lot of skinheads. <laughs> <laughs> Which, what? <laughs> and then he goes, and a lot of girls that are secretaries by day and rock goddesses by night. And also a lot of farmers. Basically, <laughs> basically, we attract all the underdogs of society. Our shows are really wild. Everybody in the band is really good. We just don't stand there. Neither does the crowd. There's always a lot of dancing. I can't imagine walking into a place and seeing just like some <laughs> sex rock goddesses <laughs> and farmers <laughs> skinheads <laughs> all, all dancing around to this. So then Tom Morello, I was looking, I was scanning for references to him. And this is all I could find. Your guitar player went to Harvard. I'm not really sure. He probably did. <laughs> and I are completely opposite. We don't talk about college, but I know he went somewhere for four years. <laughs> he was always in bands the whole time, so he always knew what he wanted to do. He practices for eight hours a day. The end. That's all you get about Tom Morello. Amazing. Amazing. That is true. Uh, yeah, he the, the eight hours a day thing is real. Like, yeah. dude doesn't rip for no reason. Yeah. Brian seems like a real douchebag. Yeah, just a fucking idiot. I wonder what happened to him. <laughs> so uh, speaking of previous bands, they took their name of Rage Against the Machine from a song from Zach's hardcore band, mm -hmm. Inside Out. Want to listen? Fuck yes. All right. Here's a little Inside Out. Oh, oh. 
Yeah, so Zach De La Roca was in Turnstile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Inside Out, such a pivotal uh, hardcore band. Are we going to talk any more about them? Bring, give it to me. Give me whatever you got. Okay, so before Inside Out, uh, Zach played guitar in another straight-edge hardcore band called Hard Stance. And then he met up with guitarist uh, Vic Takara, who... Uh, and I, if I'm pronouncing that wrong to the hardcore fans, so sorry. I just can't pronounce his Krishna name. Oh, yeah. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So Inside Out was doing great. And I actually own the book Trainwrecks and Transcendence by Vic. He talks a lot about his relationship with Zach and uh, being an Inside Out and uh, bands like Beyond. But the reason that Inside Out broke up was because Zach wanted to stay in it. Zach was fucking heartbroken. Vic, the, the guitarist, got super into Krishna, and he got the opportunity to go play guitar in Shelter, who was the premier Krishna core band at yeah. the time. So he was like, fuck you guys. I'm going to go play in a hair Krishna band. <laughs> <laughs> and Zach was absolutely crestfallen. He's like, what am I going to do with my life? And then he gets into one of the biggest bands on the planet. Which still, like, that's the question that I ask myself. Like, how did Rage Against the Machine become one of the biggest bands on the planet? It doesn't make any goddamn sense. I have a theory. And if you think about the year that this album came out, this is the same year that we're talking about the body count controversy where yeah. people, you know, labels, major labels are just signing rock acts, alternative acts. And you know that it's in one ear, out the other. They're like, yes, the kids will mosh to this. This will fill up uh, arenas. Just sign, sign, sign. And yep. they're not thinking about the content that's getting out there. It's just what will sell. Well, Rage immediately went into the studio, like before they really started playing shows. Mm -hmm. And they put together a self-titled 12-song demo. And that demo caught immediately caught the attention of two labels. Uh, they were just selling cassettes at shows and, you know, mm -hmm. the demos did what demos used to do. So Epic was the first one. And Epic actually was the label that signed Rage. The second label was Atlantic, who, no fucking joke, just sold a bunch of copies of the demo with alternate cover art and kept all the money. <laughs> Like they didn't put a contract in front of them. They literally just like this shit rules and just fucking started selling it. And like the rage guys found out about it later, but they just kind of laughed it off and didn't take any legal action. I mean, probably because it's kind of funny. I, I don't know. Atlantic is like the Rick to life. Uh, just selling bootleg t-shirts at yeah. his truck. Yeah, just bootleg Rage Against Machine. We didn't even have the same album cover. They designed a new one. That's amazing. Have you watched the video of Rage Against the Machine's first public performance? Oh, the one in the record store? No. No, I haven't. The one on the college campus. I have not seen it. Thanks for coming out today, and here's Rage Against the Machine. Okay, so let me set the stage. This is Cal State in Northridge. The date is October 23rd, 1991. You ever seen that video of those European guys singing the final countdown at that <laughs> festival that went kind of viral like 10 years ago? And <laughs> <laughs> like they, they're just standing on this ramshackle wooden piece of shit stage in a college quad. Yeah, yeah in the quad playing to fucking nobody in the baggiest pants ever made. And they're just not good yet <laughs> no tom morello looks like the dorkiest dad he's got these tight jeans hiked up to his belly button with his turtleneck tucked into them and a baseball cap on and it was like playing the guitar up around the nipple area yeah Zach De La Roca, he's not even on this stage yet. He's just kind of standing there and you don't realize he's in the band for a minute. So let's let's keep going. 
Yeah, the part where they're supposed to go, kill it in the name of. It's, it's just a jam. It's just a jam. Oh. Uh, let's, let's skip ahead a little to Zach actually coming on stage. I feel so bad for everyone involved. If I didn't know they were going to become one of the biggest bands on the planet, I I would feel real bad for them. Yo, bring that shit in. He's got like Paula Abdul dance moves. He's Roger Rabbiting across the stage. I think he's a fly girl. This is a really good Rage Against the Machine high school cover band. Yeah, but like Zach sounds good. Like he, he sounds great. Good as soon as Zach comes in. Yeah, no, and he's got great energy. But this performance goes on for about an hour, and by the end of it, you've got a good sized crowd yeah. of people. Yeah, like, yeah, they 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 built a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, missed the hit there. So yeah. That's uh, that was their first performance. I just wanted to share that little bit of history. Yeah, that's that's good. I appreciate it. Seven of the songs from that demo made it onto the debut album. Yes, a few were scrapped. With the song "Darkness of Greed" making it onto the Crow soundtrack with the new title of "Darkness." The song is about colonialism and touches on the AIDS crisis, which is an interesting choice for a movie about a goth clown zombie who murders a bunch of junkies. <laughs> But whatever, here's a clip because I really like this song. Hell yeah. They say we'll kill them off, take their land, and go there for vacation. My people's culture was strong and was stolen. If not for that white green, it would have been doomed. My people would left with no choice but to decide to conform to a system. Before we leave the demos, Nick, I got one that I want to play for you. Mindset's a threat. Have you listened to this one yet? No, I have not. So at this point in De La Roca's kind of musical evolution, after he left Inside Out, he started to pursue hip hop and emceeing, and he still hadn't quite found his voice at this time. So without further ado, here's Mindset's a Threat. The Patois. You didn't think you were getting out Son of this of season. A bitch. You did not Son think of you- a bitch. <laughs> you didn't think you were getting out of this season without uh, a Patois. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, for a minute there, Zach was fucking with the Patois and uh yeah, and, and obviously the ganja. <laughs> yeah. So th- thank God he left that one uh, back in the demos. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. That's that's something. <laughs> All right. So the band uh, signed with Epic, as stated. And according to Tom Morello, they picked Epic because they never saw an uh, ideological conflict as long as the band maintained creative control, which they did. Mm-hmm. Epic had no input into any of this. The band went into Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California in April 1992 and put a little piece of magic onto some wax with the help of our old friend Garth. No, 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 nice. <laughs> you remember may remember him from our Kitty and Trapped episode. Was he untrapped or just? Yeah, kidding? we need to check in on Chris at some point. <laughs> we can't. He's been fucking memory hold from the internet. Yeah, well, uh, y- Ukraine has him on some crazy shit. Yeah, no, I saw a video recently. I think I said it to you, Kevin, of a trap show at some bar and grill somewhere. They had about eight people in the crowd. <laughs> Oh, fuck him. I hope he is miserable. Yeah, they're out there playing at the pool hall here in Las Vegas that uh, DJ Lethal owns. I thought about just bricking their shitty rental <laughs> van, but then I realized I'm sure it's a rental van. That's yeah, that's that's mean to the guy at the rental company. <laughs> Whichever guy has to replace the windshield. Yeah, I'll just should just go brick Chris Taylor Brown. <laughs> hey, there you go. The album was released on November 3rd, 1992 with the incredible lead single, Killing in the Name, hitting radio the day before. Let's talk about the artwork. Yeah, let's. So uh, 
The artwork for the album is unforgettable, and it freaked me the fuck out the first time I ever saw it at 12 or 13 years old, which, mm-hmm. again, was at church camp, naturally. It features a famous photograph by Malcolm Brown, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, Thich Nguyen Duc, burning himself to death in Saigon in protest of the Vietnamese government's treatment of Buddhists. Uh, it's a black and white image. The man's head is on fire. It fucked me up, dude. Like, yeah, no, I remember just staring at it. I'd never seen anything like that before. And I mean, the picture had existed since, you know, the 60s, but I'd never seen it. It's not like it was in my history book. And it was just so shocking to me. That let everybody know right off the bat that this is a political message. This album is a protest. In the lyric book, there is a thanks for inspiration section, which thanks IRA leader Bobby Sands and Black Panther Party leader Huey P. Newton, and then also just Ian McKay from Fugazi, because hell yeah. Yeah, because why not? (laughs) Of course. Uh, The band immediately hit the road and uh, was part of the legendary Lollapalooza 1993 lineup that featured Primus, Alice in Chains, Dinosaur Jr., Fishbone, Arrested Development, Front 242, Tool and Babes in Toyland. Now, they didn't actually fucking play at the festival because they came out ass naked with their dick and balls out. Each of them had a letter on their chest that spelled out PMRC in protest of that shit organization uh, and just let their guitars feed back for 15 minutes before they took their cocks and balls off the stage. Could you imagine just being the A&R guy at Epic and just being like, well, there goes my Christmas bonus. For, yeah, for real, man. You wanna you wanna dive into the record? Yeah, man. Let's get let's get into it. All right, put your fist in the air, motherfuckers, because here we go. The leadoff track is bomb track. Bomb track comes out of the gate and lets you know that this is different. Is this guy rapping? He spits a pretty good flow and he lets the people know what rage is about immediately with the lyric, I warm my hands upon the flame of the flag to recall the downfall and the business that burnt us all. Yeah, he says it much faster. He does. It's uh, (laughs) thank God for lyric sheets at this point. This is easily for me in the top 10 opening tracks to an album. It's so good. It's It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the, the follow up lyric is see through the news and the views that twist reality enough. I call the bluff. Fuck manifest destiny. So good. So good. But why in a lyric that lights my heart aflame in the year 2022, this song is about how landlords are power whores and will burn when the revolution comes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, this, this song was used in Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers and was also unfortunately covered by Stone Sour. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I'm not going to play it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> the next uh, song is the most famous and most important rage song that there ever was. Killing in the Name. The first single from their first album. Alternatively titled Missing in the Point. Yes. Yes. They they wrote an anthem for every white suburban high schooler in the 1990s based off of nine words. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And like, because like we weren't savvy, we -hmm. all jumped onto the fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. Like, right. That's what everybody still jumps onto. But the most important lyric in the song is some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Mm-hmm. And I think that we didn't quite, what does work forces mean? Like I'm, I'm in the workforce. Yeah. He's talking about cops. Yeah. <laughs> this song specifically compares the Los Angeles Sheriff's department to the Ku Klux Klan. It was written after the Rodney King beating. This song is very specifically about racist police brutality in live versions of the song. Zach has been known to change the lyric to some of those that burn crosses are the same that hold office, uh, which we know to be an absolute fact, because in 2022, we have Republican politicians like Ted Cruz hanging out with Proud Boys and Marjorie Taylor Greene appearing with neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes. Wendy Rogers in Arizona is a fucking oath keeper who got elected even after making that clear. And scores of Republicans continue to spread the replacement theory, which has led to mass shootings. So 1992. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> it's not. It's not good. The song is a fucking banger. It'll go down in history. And like every once in a while, something goofy happens with it. Like the BBC accidentally played the full uncensored version and it led to like 160 <laughs> complaints. And then like a few years ago, like to protest, all I want for Christmas is you from getting to the top of the charts. Like everybody in England bought 
bought this song on iTunes. <laughs> I remember that. It's like the number one song on Christmas Day. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's an absolute banger. It's not my favorite on the album, and that just might be because it's been so oversaturated. Well, and, and it's long as shit. It's so long. <laughs> it's so long. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great song, but it is not. It is. I will say it's the most important rage song. It is not the best rage song. I agree with that. Yep. The next song is Take the Power Back. I like this song because it was the only one I could play on guitar in seventh grade. Oh, nice. All right. Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah, none so of the I, solos, but I could do the Yeah, I mean the song the song's another banger on an album full of bangers. This song is about institutional racism that permeates our education system. So I'm gonna play a little clip. Like a motherfucking weatherman. I love I love the wordplay, man. Europe ain't my rope to swing on. It's so fucking cool. Got to get it together, man. Like the weathermen who, if you don't know the weathermen, were a bunch of like leftist socialist protesters that bombed a bunch of government buildings in the in the 60s and 70s. Fuck yeah, they did. To be fair, they made sure everybody left the building before they blew it up. They did. They did. They didn't ever kill anybody. Uh, let's get into the next one. Settle for nothing. So this song is not a big political song in the way that the others are. So this song's a bit of an alternate history for Zach. Zach had a really tough childhood and he was angry. Um, when his parents broke up, he split his time between his mom and his dad. Mm -hmm. And his dad slipped into this mental illness and practiced an extreme form of Christianity that led him to destroy all of his paintings. Remember I said he was a muralist? Yeah. Like he went and destroyed them all because they were graven images. Wow. Yeah, Zach's dad forced him to sit in the dark and fast for days. Like he would eat on Friday and then get dropped back off with mom on Monday without eating anything for two days. So his mom took complete custody after that, but that put him in Irvine as we mentioned, is a place that wasn't as culturally accepting of people that look like Zach. He has told a story of a time a teacher described an area, like in class, talking to all the students, described this area of coastline between San Diego and Oceanside as a wetback station. Wow. And the entire class just like laughed out loud. And he sat there just like silent and angry. And uh, he made a promise to himself, apparently, that he wasn't going to be silent anymore. And that's that's why he does this. So um, the lyrics to this song describe a kid with a fucked up family life, and he replaces that with a gang. Uh, mm -hmm. When he says, I've got a nine, a sign, a set, and now I have a name. A nine's a gun. <laughs> yeah. A sign is a gang sign. A set is a gang. And now he has an identity because he didn't have one from his own family. When he's talking about, like, I tried to grip my family, but I slipped. Like, yeah. he's literally talking about replacing his family with joining a gang. The song also has a killer guitar solo. That's like a more traditional solo than Morello's normal, like clanking police siren guitar approach. This song probably has like the most elements of what you would consider like traditional hardcore at the time. But I also think it might, might be the most boring song on the album. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. Um, the anger doesn't come through like it does on the other one. Sure. Yeah, it doesn't. It's just uh, it's it's too long a walk to get there. Uh, and I don't mean to, you know, discount any of uh, what he's singing about. But musically, it's just not there for me. Agreed. Uh, except for that solo. The solos. Are yeah. Open. Yeah. The next song is Bullet in the Head, which is the second single. Uh, did not chart in the United States, but it did chart in the UK. And it was lifted directly from their demo tape. They just had to redo the vocals. Uh, and I'm going to play a little bit of this one. I don't know what Tom Morello's doing there. <laughs> it's got a cool bass lick. I think that one thing that you have to call out is like, this album is recorded impeccably. It is. Everything sounds so good. I want to go to the lyric, cell phone sounding like a death tone. Yeah. That one really stuck out to me. So this is recorded in 1991, 1992. I did, I did some math uh, and, and, I, and I pulled the numbers. There were 11 million cell phone subscriptions in 1992. Uh, that may sound like a large number, but in 1992, the population of the U.S. was 2.65 million. So that's roughly 4% of Americans at the time have a cell phone. Yeah. Wild. Uh, that, that, that's like him saying like today, like 
DeLoreans are guzzling up the gas. It's like, you are correct, but there's only 6,500 of them. That's a very weird hill to die on. Yeah, well, so um, the song is about government usage of the media to manipulate the population. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to be critical of television. And then, yeah, like you said, a strangely prophetic comment about cell phones, like, now people get all of their QAnon bullshit from YouTube on their phone. You know, yeah. it uses the metaphor of a bullet in the head to describe how people get blasted by propaganda through their televisions. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying when he sings just victims of the in-house drive by. They say jump, you say how high he's literally talking about media, which I honestly had no fucking idea my entire life. That's what the song was about. I was just about to say that, too. I had no fucking clue. <laughs> I, I was thinking I might just agree and play along. No, I had no fucking idea. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, in, in doing the research, I was like, oh, let's finally figure out what the fuck Bullet in the Head's about. Yep. Yeah, they, they were supposed to play this song on uh, Saturday Night Live. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they were pissed off that uh, Steve Forbes was the guest, uh, yeah. former uh, presidential candidate. And so they tried to put upside down American flags on their uh, their cabs. And uh, they got yoinked right yeah, off that. They, <laughs> yeah, they were like yeeted right off of the show and they never got to play their second song. Can you imagine that's what it took back in the day? Right. 1992, I cannot stress enough. If you haven't picked up by now, it was just a wild fucking time for like social conservatism and, and what was considered edgy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's go to the next one. Uh, know Your Enemy. This is probably my favorite song on the album. It's close uh, for me. This is a big, big favorite for me. It's a classic rage song with a big riff, a really big flow. When Zach sings, action must be taken. We don't need the key. We'll break in. Something must be done about vengeance, a badge and a gun. Like I feel it. All of it. <laughs> uh, and we cannot discount our uh, guest vocalist on this one. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's play it and then we'll say what it is after. <laughs> All right, so uh, you now have had time to guess uh, who that was, but I'll tell you, there were two guest appearances on that clip. Kevin, there are two. Two? Two. The first is the obvious one. Uh, that is Maynard James Keenan from Tool singing yeah. the vocal on that bridge. That person banging those wood blocks or whatever in the background, that is Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction. Shut up, really? Yeah. I had no idea. Yep. Can you imagine being Zach and... One year you're in a straight edge hardcore band and the next you're in a studio with Maynard James Keaton wearing a leather thong and guzzling <laughs> ayahuasca and <laughs> opening his third eye. <laughs> you walk into the studio and everybody's just made of like muscles. <laughs> no one has skin anymore. Yeah. <laughs> For real. And like, and like, it's cool that Maynard's on it, but like, sick of complacence now. It's yeah, he doesn't really add anything to the song, no. but it is a nice little kind of, you know. Yeah. But to, uh, I, I want to hammer the the point of this song home, and I don't normally play two clips from the same song, but I just want you to hear the ending of this one because it's super sick. Okay. Dude just doesn't miss. Yeah. He's such a good fucking vocalist. What he just did right there was like very much from his hardcore roots. Oh, like yeah. That, that kind of delivery. Yeah, but that's what that's the question. Like hardcore was so underground mm -hmm. in 1991, 1992. Mm -hmm. And like this was, I mean, this, this record sold 3 million copies around the world. I'm glad it happened, but I still to this day don't understand it. Me either. But I'm glad that it did because it allowed this band and some of this messaging to get into the zeitgeist. So mm -hmm. I'm going to talk for a minute about this next one. The next song is called Wake Up. Unfortunately, this song is used in the closing scene of The Matrix. So as Boom. soon as I hear it, that's all I can see. Neo's Neo flying fucking right off the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But 
it sounds cool, and that's why they use it in the Matrix, but it underscores the point. Rage is mostly com- a, composed of political songs, but this is the one. Mm-hmm. So this song is about racism in the U.S. government and specifically in the FBI's counterintelligence program, which without a doubt, 100 percent targeted prominent African-American leadership in the civil rights era. Uh, Zach Singh's, you know, they went after King when he spoke out on Vietnam. He turned the power to the have nots and then came the shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about Malcolm X's assassination and how, you know, they tried, tried to, blame to blame it on, it on Islam, Islam, right? Yep. <clears throat> In a spoken word interlude, De La Roca reads directly from a memo written by J. Edgar Hoover about using counterintelligence to neutralize black nationalist leaders. Okay, so what happened right there is this song is a, like an essential piece of every like live rage show. Yeah. Um, they always play Wake Up usually right before the last song of the night. And Zach takes that moment where he read that Hoover clip and he said gives a political speech. So he's talking about um, Noam Chomsky, the writer, mm-hmm. who said that if the same laws were applied to U.S. presidents were applied to the Nazis after World War II, he's talking about the Nuremberg trials, mm-hmm. that every single one of them should be hung to death and shot. Uh, for committing war crimes. So guess what happened after Zach said that at Coachella? <laughs> what? Fox News went ape shit. <laughs> so do you remember that show Hannity and Combs when <sighs> Sean Hannity was paired with a liberal named Combs? Yes. I say liberal with quotes here because the motherfucker supported Giuliani for mayor and supported torture techniques by the U.S. government. And anyway, that fucking guy got kicked off the show and Fox realized they could make more money off of angry boomers if they just kept the fascist and got rid of the liberal. So uh, anyway, Hannity and Combs had Ann Coulter and Ugh. Ted Nugent on the air to talk about it. And they played that clip under a big chyron that said rock group Raging as a Machine says Bush administration should be shot. Ann Coulter said in response, they're losers, their fans are losers, and there's a lot of violence coming from the left wing. This is the same Ann Coulter that when speaking about Bill Clinton said, the only issue is whether to impeach or assassinate. (laughs) Draft dodger and child fucker Ted Nugent provided the following. We've disagreed with a lot of administrations in the past, but none of our rhetoric included threatening lives. These guys are over the top, but they're the lunatic fringe that even your average Democrat and liberal doesn't agree with. But unfortunately, nobody is silencing these guys, or not necessarily silencing, but condemning this outrageous violence that they're recommending. Four months later, Nugent went on stage at one of his shows and said the following, Obama, he's a piece of shit. I told him to suck on my machine gun. Hey, Hillary, he continued. You might want to ride one of these into the sunset, you worthless bitch. <laughs> Freedom. Freedom. Yeah, right. Is this, is this the same Ted Nugent who his approach to avoiding the draft is the same as if he were cornered by a bear, which is to soil himself? <laughs> Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's that Ted Nugent. Yep. Fucking draft dodger and you know. Fun fact, uh Ann Coulter was once a deadhead. Uh whatever. I wish she was just dead dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck them all. All fuck right. Em. Anyway, uh so if I have to pick my least favorite song on the record, it's Fistful of Steel. Did you know it's 17,400 hertz? Uh that's a frequency that only teenagers can hear. Okay. I, I swear to God, that is. Yeah, no, I'm familiar yeah. with the concept. Yeah. Uh, most people over the age of 18 cannot hear this tone. And that may be why Tom Morello is giving me a huge fucking headache during this song. No joke. There were parts I had to skip because it just gave me a splitting headache. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. It's oh, my brutal. God. It was uh, yeah, I mean, the song is is about how Zach's chosen weapon is a microphone, and it's it, it's filler. I mean, yeah, I hate to say it because I love this album, but it's the filler. Yeah. Uh, speaking of filler. So I, I don't necessarily agree. Uh, the, the next song is Township Rebellion, and definitely not a highlight of the record. Why did nobody take away their cowbells? <laughs> Here's my theory. I think Rage broke for lunch and Primus snuck into the studio <laughs> and started jamming. 
Anyway. Yeah, yeah, the cowbells, man. And, and, yeah, and the doom, doom, doom. It's just weird. Right. But anyway, the song's called Township Rebellion. In South Africa, during apartheid, non-white people were not allowed to live like wherever they wanted. They were forced into specific areas that were known as townships, mm-hmm. and they were often denied basic services like water and sewers and power and stuff. Uh, so when Zach's singing, now freedom must be fundamental in Johannesburg or South Central, on the mic, because someone should tell him to kick in the township rebellion. He's talking about using his platform to spread the word basically about global white supremacy. <laughs> um, and the end of the song, he eerily predicts the spread of modern American Christo-fascism, where uh, shackle their minds when they're bent on the cross, where ignorance reigns, life is lost. Like he's literally talking about like the creep of evangelical Christianity and fascism. But did it need a mouth harp? <laughs> It's the thing. It didn't have a mouth harp. That was all shit that Tom was doing on his guitar. No, no. It said made without keyboards, synthesizers. (laughs) It said nothing about mouth harps. (laughs) And by the way, this is uh, Bob LeBeau playing Turkey in the Straw live. Bob LeBeau. Well, I had a little chicken and she had a wooden leg. So I ran hot water down the left hind leg. I want to show you the audience because it looks like this might be the last song they ever hear. <laughs> you've you've taken too much, too many minutes from my life. <laughs> Trust me, it's not as many as these people have left. All right, fuck it. They're all gonna die. It's a it's a retirement home. <laughs> is what I was trying yeah, to say. Kind of figured. Kind of figured. All right, so uh, let's close it up with the last song on the album. Yes, freedom. So freedom for me has the most clever lyrics on the album, but if you didn't know what it's about, it's really tough to decipher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get into it, man. So the song speaks to the continued. It's, I'm such a fucking bummer. Today. You are dude. <laughs> this has been, I, I've really been trying super hard to like keep, keep the energy up, but like <laughs> this makes it so hard. I'm sorry. This song's about the continued genocide of the native people of America. This is what we're ending on. This is what we're yeah. ending the season on. That's what they picked. I didn't pick the track list. Jesus. Uh, so Raging as a Machine has long advocated for a guy named Leonard Peltier, mm-hmm. who is a Native American activist who is jailed for two consecutive life sentences after a shootout at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in 1975, where two FBI agents were killed. Whole lot of inconsistencies in the in the case. A lot of sketchy stuff. Uh, they, you know, really leaned on some witnesses to potentially make some stuff up and whatever. So this song is is basically about him and about the plight of the modern uh, Native American. Uh, but it has uh, pretty wild lyrics. Uh, he symbolizes the, like the continuance of this like genocidal policy, including lines such as uh, "It's set up like a deck of cards. They're sending us to early graves for all the diamonds. They'll use a pair of clubs to beat the spades." Which is just like wow, that's a wild a, ass lyric. That's a crazy ass lyric. Yeah, and then there's some references to like forced native assimilation and eradication. I'm just gonna play the clip. Fuck up, get your fuck with your name. Get your loose hits on the wall, playing tic tac toe. Yo, check the diagonal. Three million gone. Come on, cause you know they're counting backwards to zero. Environment. The environment exceeding on the level of our unconsciousness. For example, what does the billboard say? Come and play, come and play. Forget about the movement. So there's a shitload to unpack in that mm-hmm. lyric. Uh, when, he, when he's talking about like, brother, did you forget your name? He's talking about like forced assimilations into Indian schools and stuff. Where, oh, we're going to play tic-tac-toe. You're going to learn how to be a, an American. And like, here's now your name's John. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then when he sings the... Um, Come and play, come and play. Forget about the movement. He's talking about native casino billboards. I have a very clear recollection of this video. I was getting into heavy music in 92, but made no mistake, I was I was a child. So as a child, I loved Terminator 2. Yeah. It was yeah. one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, we talk about a lot on this show. Yes. And as a fan of Terminator 2, I loved the Guns N' Roses video, You Could Be Mine, which okay. was released around the same time. You know, you remember that one where like Arnold goes to the Guns N' Roses concert and <laughs> as the Terminator. Do you remember this? I don't. I have no recollection. Oh, of my God. The You Could Be Mine video. So 
Arnold, as the Terminator, goes to the Guns N' Roses concert and uh, he's got his gun and he walks into the place and Guns N' Roses is doing their thing and then it's interspersed with clips from Terminator 2. And at the very end, in his Terminator vision, he looks at all of them and the analysis is waste of ammo. Amazing. It's a great video. And I used to wait for that to come on at MTV. I, I just would sit there and be like, oh, I, I hope I get to see the Terminator video. And then this comes on and it's nothing but text yeah it is yeah. a book report as a music video that tells you about the the fbi getting i mean it's just it's a lot to unpack when you all you want to do is see arnold yeah i mean rage against the machine is is a heavy band for two reasons yeah. <laughs> also i i don't want to leave this without saying that like De La Roca, he seems like the type of person that you can't exist in the same space as for too long and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, without the a crazy ass speech break. Yeah, out. like, hey, uh, Zach, what do you want? Can I get you a Coke? Yeah, the same Coke that's <laughs> yeah. that that yeah that uh, that hired right wing death squads in Costa Rica. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, oh wow. Okay. They, they did, but I think it was Argentina. Yeah. I, no, they absolutely <laughs> did. They uh, they did go on to put out three other full length albums, the equally brilliant uh, Evil Empire and Battle of Los Angeles, which might be my favorite. I Battle of Los Angeles is my favorite. I, I can't yep. wait to do it on the show because it, it's such oh, a yeah. fucking great record. And then a covers album called Renegades, which eh. De La Roca has made it clear he had no part in that. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I think it was probably a contractual obligation. It was the spaghetti incident of Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, I mean, like the, the single was Renegades of Funk covering Africa Bombata, like just didn't it didn't yeah it didn't work didn't work zach has gone on to do some solo material including a project mm -hmm. called one day as a lion and he dropped a pretty sick line on a uh run the jewels track that got a lot of radio on a play. few of them yeah yep um so he's around uh you know just living off his royalties and popping up when he needs to uh the mm -hmm. other members formed audio slave with chris cornell from Soundgarden, which sounded a lot like acdc and i hated it i suck <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, and then they, they later went on to form Prophets of Rage with members of Public Enemy and Cypress Hill, which on paper sounds fucking awesome, but it still sucked ass. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. Rage Against the Machine is unique in that you have a group of incredibly talented musicians making classic albums. And if you subtract just one person from that equation, they shit the bed in every possible way. <laughs> <laughs> they literally cannot make good music. If one person no, is subtracted well, from that. No, I mean, you're not wrong. Tom Morello has been releasing new music under the name Atlas Underground. And Rage Against the Machine has reunited for a national tour this year with uh, Run the Jewels. Yeah. Uh, after the global pandemic shut it down two years ago. They're, they're getting yeah, yeah. I was uh, going to get tickets for the Raleigh show, but they're $300. Yeah. They're insanely expensive. Have you, uh, have you ever seen them? I, I have. Yes. I saw Rage Against the Machine at Lollapalooza. 2008 for the reunion show and it was cool it was super cool just to see rage for the first time but not so cool that it was in a crowd of 500,000 people from half a mile away at you know one of the most obscenely capitalistic festivals to be held you know yeah it was also you know he stopped the show like three or four times because like people were getting hurt it's like well that's what happens when you play huge shows like this i actually left oh wow i listened to it as i was walking out because i felt like what i was experiencing was not the way that was not the way I wanted to experience Rage Against the Machine. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Uh, I saw them once and only once on yeah. November 26th, 1999. Get out at the Allstate Arena in Rosemont, Illinois on the Battle of Los Angeles tour. Oh, damn, dude. Opening acts, Gangstar <gasps> and the Dilated Peoples. Shut up. Yep. I was too young and dumb to appreciate those acts, though. Oh, man. Uh, oh. I just remember the guy from Gangstar talking about rolling his grandpa's ashes into a into a blunt and smoking them. And I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> but it was an arena show, but we were like side stage. So we were pretty fucking close. And mm -hmm. I was super stoked. Um, yeah, they Zach did stop the show. Some girl was crowd surfing and some guy was groping her and he like shut the whole fucking show down, and like pointed this guy out. Yeah, which cool. also good on him. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. Um, but it was also, uh, I walked into that arena and some fucking hacky sack, hippie looking guy gave me a flyer and it was a flyer talking about sweatshop labor and, hmm. um, specifically called out the gap, which was my employer at the time I worked for old Navy. 
And it started to really bother me as I researched it. And it talks about like this basically indentured servitude in the Mariana Islands where uh, the Gap has all their clothes manufactured by all these women that like pay this exorbitant fee to get brought to America. And then they just stick them in the Mariana Islands, which is technically an American property and just make them make clothes until they pay off their debts. Mm -hmm. Like that shit still happens. It's super fucked up. And that's led like to like I almost only buy clothes from B corporations now. Like I'm really careful about like uh, my consumerism and like how that affects the labor. And like that's it, that moment like changed my whole life. Uh, uh, about a month later, I was working shipment in Old Navy and I opened up a box and all the clothes inside had blood all over them. And I threw the box in the dumpster and I quit and I held a protest in front of Old Navy the next week. <laughs> my boss, I was like, Nick, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, get inside fascist. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, this guy's just like, fuck. Yeah, no, guy. Now I know the guy's making like eight fifty an hour. Like, yeah, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, eh, you know your heart's in the right place. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Yeah, Rage, Rage was the band where like I don't know if I would ever have asked myself like, hmm, I wonder why J. Edgar Hoover was such a bastard, and I should research that at length. Did the FBI set out to assassinate Martin Luther King? Oh shit, they did. Was the CIA trafficking cocaine into uh, South Central Los Angeles? Oh, they were. Yep, yep. Uh, it set me on the path to look at things through a different lens, and you know, I have that album to thank for it. Well, hey, let's uh, let's end rage with a little little bit of humor. I have a video clip for you of uh, some people who looked through everything through a different lens <laughs> in 2020. This little clip went viral. Kevin, you want to explain what we're seeing here? This is these are some deranged deranged supporters of Donald Trump that looks like they are being cordoned off from the rest of uh, the crowd. They have this big perimeter around them. There's a stop the steal sign. They are wearing Blue Lives Matter flags and Trump hats and waving Trump flags. And they are having a three-person mosh pit to rage against the machine. I, yep. I, oh, wow, wow. The, liter the woman is wearing a thin blue line flag and singing a song about police brutality without fucking knowing it. What is it about all of these like weird QAnon Trump people where they love to wear the little flag capes? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You remember when Paul Ryan said that Rage Against the Machine was his favorite band? Yeah. And they were like, Paul Ryan, here's a press release. You're the machine, bitch. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, anyway, that brings us to a close, man. Wow. Wow. We made it, dude. What have uh, what have you been listening to? There's two answers to that. Nick, I've been playing a shit ton of Elden Ring. Okay. Are you familiar with this game? N not really. It is incredibly difficult. It uh, was partially plotted out by um, George R.R. R. Martin. It is a beautiful game that also has basically the stuff of nightmares crammed into every little bit of it. Uh, it gives me real-time anxiety, and I cannot stop playing it. <laughs> they, they don't have like music or songs, really. There's just atmosphere that's been composed by Yuka Kitamura. Is it just dying things? Yes. <laughs> that's what I listen to for hours. What? Why is the Coheed and Cambria logo on the screen? Because this shit is for dorks. <laughs> uh, but when I'm not like just ignoring the entire world and playing Elden Ring for hours on end, I'm going to keep saying it. I'm on the Furnace Fest train and dead to fall. I've really been going back into their catalog because they're going to be playing uh, Chicago Boys. They have haven't put out an album since 2008, but in 2020, they released the single No One Is Coming To Help, and I want to play you a little bit of that. I just had the hardest time taking that band seriously because I think the song Eternal Gates of Hell is so funny. <laughs>
Well, I'll, I will play you something that I don't take seriously and that I also find funny. Uh, have you ever listened to Amigo the Devil? Uh, maybe a little bit. I wouldn't know it if you played it for me. So play it for me. So he's uh, I saw him uh, open for Murder by Death once, and I'm going to go see Frank Turner, Amigo the Devil, and the Bronx uh, in July. Awesome. So I've uh, been kind of getting into it. Uh, this is a song that I was watching him live, and I was like, oh, this guy's pretty good. And then he played this song, and it made me laugh, and I enjoy it. So I'm going to play about a minute of... The song Husband by Amigo the Devil. All right. Trust me, I'm not jealous. I'm just hoping that he really messes up. I'm not so much afraid of letting go as much as scared of giving up. that's the gist of that oh man okay that's that that makes me feel a little better after uh a real 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 bummer of a finale yeah real bummer oh man you know, you know it's not a bummer fucking uh, hanging out with you every weekend getting to do this thing um you know not to not to get all mushy but i've really really enjoyed doing this all season and uh it's been a yeah this was a fun one yeah, for sure it, i was definitely therapeutic at times we started this season we took a long break between two and three mm-hmm. i started a new job i moved across the country kevin got married and you know it was kind of a delight to be able to bring you all this stuff going back to like that heavy Ukraine episode where we found yeah. like the, the toughest music coming out of Ukraine. If you haven't listened to that mosh pit, go back. It fucking rules. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a lot of fun putting all this together. Um, we deserve a little break. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna head out to uh, Sequoia National Park tomorrow and live in the woods for a few days. Um, yeah, I'm gonna try and do that a couple more times before work gets crazy in the fall. But uh, heck yeah, yeah, we will. We we also uh, you know we get a lot of uh, interaction this season with a lot of people on our Instagram account and on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, we do read everything. We do appreciate all the clicks, all the likes, all the recommendations, tagging us and stuff. It's great. And we love when you ask us to do stuff. We got a pretty funny request um, to cover the acoustic new metal band from which we took our name, <laughs> Days of the New. I, I feel like that has to happen. Uh, I can tell you right now, I've been talking to uh, Partea Mike. Um, yeah. We're going to be doing Deadsy. We, uh, I, I can tell you next season, we are going to be, um, I don't want to spoil it. I think I could talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are going to be doing a dramatic recreation of Rob Zombie's The Crow 2037. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely going to talk about System of a Down, yep. and maybe Kevin will finally bring his oral history of Janko jeans to the show. Yeah, you know what? But I, I actually I lost my script. It got when, uh, when my computer bummer. died, so I'll, I'll be working back through that. But yes, that is going to happen. So we've already got things on the stove. It's just we, we need a break. We need some time to regroup and bring you the best damn podcast that we can. Yeah, this shit takes a lot of it time. Takes so long. <laughs> it takes so long. I've gone down the rabbit hole. Like Cop Killer, that took forever. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a real joy to do this. And thank you to everybody who listens. So we'll see you when we see you. It'll be, you know, sometime early 2023. That seems to be when we kind of come back out of uh, our hidey holes and start making yeah. new episodes. Yeah, we'll see. It might be a little earlier. Who knows? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's only uh, June. Yeah. So yeah, probably won't take six months off. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know. And uh, as always, we're around. So just hit us up on social media. Speaking of, where can they find us, Nick? Well, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Days of the New. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nick underscore the underscore knife. You can find me on Instagram at KJDELURY. And I've decided I'm no longer going to tell people they can't find me on Twitter because just like when we did cold opens, 
some bits need to die. <laughs> uh, oh, also, I got a I got a new license plate. It says New Metal on it. Yes, so you do. Silver Treat driving around with a blue license plate that says New Metal. Fucking give me a wave. <laughs> They'll talk to me. Fucking weirdo. <laughs> we'll see you next season. See you guys. Days of the New is a production of the Palm Springs '86. You were there. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, that was, fuck that was it. good. That was fuck good. It. That was good. All right. <laughs>